the scribbles on the board are not part of the lesson, except maybe they, they give some uh, insight into the lesson, not to scale, but that timeline is from Genesis through the end of Revelation, and then the lower ones, I've tried to plot my tiny, tiny life on, on the big span, and of course, uh, that span is just a segment of eternity, so that when we talk about the things that we're talking about today, we can recognize that part of the work that we need to do on our hearts uh, to get these idols exposed and idols out, part of that work, a large part of the work and the reason for the work is that we're creatures of very, very minute blimps of time and here we're having to do with the eternal God. Uh, uh, he stoops low and takes on our nature in the sun but he is eternal after all, and we are creatures, and we are of time. So that's probably why we keep on needing long periods of time to learn what our hearts are like and to learn that we have divided hearts and divided minds. And this is, the, this is how we get to idols. <laughs> okay. With this chapter, I think our author begins to show the nature of idolatry, and then she'll particularize it with the chapters that come ahead. And I, in my mind, I think of that as a double heart or a double mind. She doesn't mean the four-chambered heart that we have that sends life to the cells, but she means our most inner self, the true identity where our thoughts, our feelings, our motives, our intentions, our choices reside. That is the true seat of our personality, that's our self. Apart from God's revealed truth, saint and sinner alike can be blinded to the truth about their own hearts. How many times in my life have I said to the Lord, I didn't know that was in my heart, <laughs> when his word reveals that it is and that it has been. So we're blinded often to the truth of our own hearts unless we should think that, that, the, that the saved heart uh, is in much better shape. Jeremiah 17, 9 corrects us with this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. That's King James, incurably sick, I believe is ESB. Who can know it? And the truth is we can't know it apart from God's revealed word. It's because Christians' hearts are yet incurably sick that God's Spirit applies the Word and works in us through the Word to bring us to understanding of the nature of our hearts. And the Word and the truth shine into our incurably sick hearts to give, as Second Corinthians says, the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Our author points us to James, who helps us to see that sin begins in the heart with our desires. It's amazing that in raising children, um, though they, they, they don't know, the young ones who love Jesus and, and are growing up in the church, don't recognize the nature of what J James has to say. Maybe we understand it as we become adults. 
Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Our incurably sick hearts are an inherited condition passed down at the fall from our first parents, Adam and Eve. Reading through the Old Testament, we might shake our heads with wonder at how quickly the people under the Old Covenant turn away from God after he sent them personal up-close messages and promises um, from every direction. They turn away so quickly. And, and they turn away from God to what our author is terming spiritual adultery with idols. But if we, and I want us to together, take a quick survey of five scenes and events from creation week to 2023, and we'll see that we are just like those Old Testament people that we're reading about and shaking our heads in wonder. The first scene is Eden. Eden, where the four rivers cross. Uh, that, that place of Eden now is near the head of the Persian Gulf, which is in the news all the time. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. And as I'm reading through these scenes that are taking us from, from creation to now, um, listen particularly, I, I don't intend to spend a lot of time um, explaining what the verse plainly says, but just listen to, um, to, to the verbs and to the to pronouns what God says and what the people say in light of what God says. This is Genesis 1, 26 through 28. God said, no, that's not where it is. And God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle, over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So a high place for man. So God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So God created man in his own image and gave him dominion. Can you see how we might make idols of ourselves? Because we are the, at, at the head of all the created beings. Genesis 3, 6 through 7. Then the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise and she took its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of them both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig trees, fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Eve saw, she desired and she ate forbidden fruit. What she did is common to all of the women who followed after her. 
we see, we often desire, we often partake or act without reference to the authoritative word that God has already declared to us. The second scene is the plain of Shinar. This is the place where the nations descended from Noah, united, and concocted this lofty plan that they wouldn't scatter over the earth, but they were going to come together. This is Genesis 11, 3 through 4. So here's God's declarative command. And and, and at the the Tower of Babel, there's another plan. Listen to the personal pronouns. Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They had brick for stone and they had asphalt for mortar. And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower whose top is in the heavens. Let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad over all the face of the earth. So in direct contradiction to God with no reference for him or his glory or his commands, they set out to make a name for themselves. The third scene is Mount Sinai in the wilderness of Sinai. This is three months after the Exodus And God has warned Moses that neither priests nor people are to make any attempt to pass the barrier and go up the mountain to where his presence is. Um, Think about that they were warned. I wondered in studying this, does that mean that they were already trying to force themselves, not by building a tower up to heaven, but force themselves into that presence that that they had been banished from? I don't know, but it it caused me to think. Exodus 20, 30 through, 3 through 7. <clears throat> God's commands come through Moses down to the people. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth, you shall not bow down to them nor serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Tony Reinke, R-E-I-N-K-E, in an an article written in 2017, the title is Nail in the Coffin of Our Hearts, points these things out from these verses. That God has done some, some really careful education here with these three verses. Don't follow other gods. God is forbidding syncretism. If you do any philosophy reading or any cultural reading, you know that that's the thing everybody wants is to take all the good things and all the religions and put them together and mix them in. God forbids this, absolutely forbids it. There's no no such thing as one-third of God and two-thirds of my ideas. There's no such thing of of adding two-thirds of popular culture or woke culture to the word of God. They don't mix, they can't mix. In 2, 4 through 6, 
don't corrupt your worship with vain images. And the writer of the article says that here God is forbidding reductionism. Don't reduce God to less than he is. Um, in other words, um, you couldn't, there's no way to make an image that would represent him or that would come anywhere. It's just an impossible thing to do. Therefore, Christians don't do it, can't do it, mustn't do it. You can't reduce God to any of those things. And when we see evidence that, that a culture or a religion has tried to do it, they don't know the God of the Bible. 227, don't use God's name in vain. This forbids presumption. We're not likely to make an image and put in our in a in an inner place in our houses, but do we do we sometimes vainly invoke God's name for an explanation of something that covers our ignorance of him? Isaiah 66 corrects us all to how God and vast to how wide and vast eternal God is and how small we are. We're not nothing, but in comparison to God, we're very small. The earth is God's footstool, Isaiah says. How would we question him? How would we, how would we say, I think God would be okay with this? How would we do this? We couldn't do it, could we? We shouldn't do it. The fourth scene is Israel in the 8th century B.C. when God's promises to David of an everlasting kingdom are 300 years old already. By now, Rome and Carthage have been founded. There's been religious reform in India that, has, that is about to give rise in the process of giving rise to Buddhism. Um, the author of this study points out that there are many similarities to this period of time and the 16th century after Christ. So we think, shouldn't the people in the Old Testament have learned? And we have to say to ourselves, shouldn't we have learned? Because we repeat the same things over and over. This is Hosea, and our author has called our attention to him. I want to change a little bit. Well, first of all, Hosea, Joel, and Amos were the three uh, minor prophets. They foresaw the destruction and the sorrow ahead that God had promised he would sin because of sin. But beyond that, they saw that God will fulfill his promises in a deliverer. Dr. Henrietta Mears wrote a handbook of the Bible, What the Bible is All About, several years ago. She has this beautiful observation that Hosea pictures Jesus Christ as the healer of those who slide backwards. And I, that, that's not with any doctrinal implications. That's just that some days we follow Christ and other days we ignore him. Um, Joel pictures Jesus Christ as the one who restores, and Amos pictures Jesus Christ as the heavenly husbandman, which is where our author is going to head this week and in other weeks to come too. So as uh, Hosea 2, I'm going to read excerpts of Gomer's words and God's responses. So Gomer, and, and to tell you the truth, in reading and studying all the times I have through Hosea, my mind has always been on Hosea and God. This time, because of our study, I was thinking I was following Gomer. 
Um, and so following Gomer, let me just read some excerpts from chapter two. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me my bread and my water, my wool and my linen, my oil and my drink. Therefore, behold, comes the answer, I will hedge up your way with thorns and wall her in so that she cannot find her paths. She will chase her lovers, but not overtake them. Yes, she will seek them, but not find them. Then, then she will say, I will go and return to my first husband, for it was better for me than now. For she did not know that I gave her. She thought the lovers gave her the good things. I gave her the grain, the new wine, the oil. I multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. And then in verse 10, no one shall deliver her from my hand. I will cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, her Sabbaths, all her appointed feasts. I will destroy the vines and her fig trees of which she has said, these are my wages. I worked for any number of years and had an earned income. I remember thinking of things that I used my income for. This is my purchase. This is what I purchased. These are my wages that my lovers have given me. So I will make them a forest and the beasts of the field shall eat them. I will punish her for the days of the balls to which she burned incense. She decked herself with her earrings and jewelry, went after her lovers, but me she forgot, says the Lord. And then the last excerpts, therefore will I allure her I will bring her into the wilderness. I will speak comfort to her. 16, and it shall be in that day, says the Lord, that you will call me my husband and no longer call me my master. Husband is closer than master. 19, I will betroth you to me forever. Yes, I will betroth you to me in righteousness and justice, in loving kindness and mercy. 23, then I will sow her for myself in the earth, and I will have mercy on her who had not obtained mercy. Then I will say to those who were not my people, you are my people. And they shall say, you are my God. Quite, quite um, a progress through, through Gomer, or for Gomer, not not. That, that God claims her and woos her and owns her and, and has a plan to redeem her. So the two excerpts of Gomer's words and God's responses um, bring to light the idolatrous eyes that she, that she has in stark contrast to God's righteous, merciful I wills. Scene five. Scene five moves us forward to Matthew's record of Jesus' line going back to Abraham and David to show Jesus' royal descent. Matthew makes it clear that Jesus is the, the long-awaited king. He is the Messiah. There's no, there's no ambivalence about who he is. He is the line Lion of the tribe of Judah. 
Matthew 17, that is the place where Jesus, where God says from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He's been identified. He's having, he has already overcome Satan's mocking temptations. And he begins the ministry in the middle of Matthew of calling and training and teaching and showing himself to be master over disease and death and demons and all of those other things. And then we come to his counsel of the rich young ruler also in today's lesson. Um, and I also, because of reading in our, in our book about idols, I also saw, I, I think, deeper into this. So uh, 16 through 22 of this passage. Now behold, one came and said to him, Good teacher, what good thing shall I do that I may have eternal life? So he said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. We learn a lesson from Jesus every time he speaks almost because he refers not to himself. He refers to God. He says, I came to do God's will. I have God's word in me. I'm, my, my meat is to do the will of the Father. That's, that's um, an example for us in all things in our homes, I think. Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. If you want to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, which ones? Jesus said, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, honor your father and your mother, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Um, I would always heretofore feel pretty good that I had not done. You know, I, I could be like the rich young ruler. I could have said I, I've kept those. Not perfectly, but Yes. The young man said to him, all these things I have kept from my youth, what do I still lack? Jesus said to him, if you want to be perfect, go sell what you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when the young man heard that saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. <clears throat> it's interesting that Jesus skipped down from the first of the commandments to these commandments that have to do with the Christians, uh, with the horizontal relationships. He skipped all the way down. He would not have had to if the rich young ruler had been obeying the first ones, would he? <laughs> to love God, if we love God the way God intends for us to love God, these other things have to come into line. If I love God and hate my neighbor, the strong implication is I don't love God. <laughs> um, I, I think my ideas are here that might be better. Um, which of God's commandments pinpoints our idols or the idols in the, in the culture around us? Where and how have we reduced God in building up our homes and training our children? Or have we participating in reducing God because it comes home to us through social media, through, through uh, friends, through play dates on the street? <laughs> Where have you 
presumed, where have we presumed on God by using his name to cover our ignorance or our uh, neglect of his attributes? Um, if you have, if, or your husband has, if there's a book in your house or, or an access by social media to look to reread the divine attributes of God, it's a wonderful washing to do it and a reorienting to do it. Some of the attributes he communicates to us, and that's part of the reason, too, I think that we're proud and we build our idols in our own hearts. But the divine, all of the divine attributes he does not share, he cannot share. And those are the ones that commend us, well, all of them, really, but those are the ones that commend us to love this God of eternity who has saved us through his Son. Where and how and when are you attempting, am I attempting to add or mix to syncretize God's absolutes? <clears throat> Eve and Israel and Gomer and the rich young ruler were alike in that they placed themselves before God who commands obedience to his laws, which scriptures sum up with this beautiful passage. God is willing to do this in Matthew 22 through his writer, 36 and 37. The Pharisees ask that very thing. What's the great commandment? So all those we read in Exodus, Jesus in the New Testament to the Pharisees and Sadducees sums them up with these words, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and great commandment and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. The last scene that I will leave to you at the close today is a scene uh, that comes from my life. I wrote this in a, in an, a letter early this week to the mentors um, and feel not to use it as a display or to, to call attention to myself, but, but because it's fitting. Um, in 1979, as a young wife and mother, my husband was transferred to Texas, and so we were in a city in Texas looking for a home, and so we had to be in several homes over several days. And that was the first time in my life I had seen shrines inside houses. Um, and it made my heart very heavy, and I, it showed me how naive I was because I, it took me by surprise. I don't know that it should have, but it did. It took me by surprise. Public shrines are one thing, and I'd seen a few in a little bit of world travel, but private ones leave no doubt as to the affection of the one who built the shrine. <clears throat> in the 90s, I was now middle-aged, and I began to study humility. Humility is not to think little of ourselves or be falsely humble, but it's to think of ourselves less often. I want to be out of my thoughts. I want the Lord to be more in my thoughts was my motive in studying humility using Andrew Murray's book. Someone knew that I was studying that and asked me what keeps all Christians, what keeps us from yielding to God's Holy Spirit? 
And I gave an honest answer <laughs> that if I'd thought longer, I might not have been so honest. But I said, I suppose that I'm afraid that I will disappear. So the Lord is building me up. I'm growing in him. He's sanctifying me. I feel some confidence. I feel some maturity. And I'm saying I'm afraid I'll disappear. Um, last year, for the same need, I returned to Andrew Murray's book in 1923. And I remembered that question. And I thought to my, it, it made me happy and it made me sad brought grief and uh, joy and sorrow that I remembered my answer then I'm afraid I'll disappear and then my answer last year was I'm afraid that I won't disappear this is a work of God so deep if I get into it I don't want to do it half-heartedly <laughs> I want the spirit of God to to um to do a work in me, to get the idol of myself out of my heart. Let's return fully, gladly, quietly to our homes, me too, and obey God in all the things which is the response of those who have been united to him by faith. And if there is a disconnect between what we profess and how we act and speak and think, as I said earlier, doesn't this implicate that our, it's either showing us that our action or our profession needs to be worked on? The implication is that in Christ, we are yet double-minded if we profess him and then our speaking is not, is not in line with it. More likely, um, um, I'm using double-mind and double-heart and single-mind and single-heart in a very personal way. In my case, it was, yeah, the mind was double, but more elemental than that is the heart was a double-minded heart. Want to say, not I, but Christ, and mean it. And Hebrews 2.17 says that to help me get to where my heart's desire is, Christ in his role as high priest is faithful. And the work in his high priesthood is that he's been made to us a merciful high priest in all the things to do with God, that he is able to put our sins away so that we live with, with not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as preeminent. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I pray that you will work the soil of your word into our work, the seed of your word into the soil of our hearts. And I pray that the, the harvest would be a glory to you, um, that there would be first growth and second growth and then mature growth and that you would be glorified. In Christ's name, amen.